Up next, a salient warning to the rest of the world, courtesy of those crazy Swiss, busily demonstrating to the remainder of ambient humanity exactly the pitfalls of failing to get an integrated EV strategy up and running. I'm John Cadogan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheaper. Australia only. Website. Card. The crazy Swiss, they're thinking of implementing a ban on the discretionary use of EVs, which doesn't sound very impartial to me. But first, I just want to detain you with a couple of aspects of what Sam Harris would call housekeeping. First up, don't forget about the Olight sale, which winds up tomorrow, which would be Friday the 16th of December at midnight. If you don't have one, they're awesome. I don't recommend products that I don't also own and use, and I've been using this one for months. It's the Warrior Mini 2. It replaced the original Warrior Mini, which I carried also for months. And this one has a series of ongoing altercations in my pocket with my other EDC, my Leatherman. It just spends the whole time doing this, which gives it a unique patina, I suppose, but doesn't appear to influence its functionality at all. So anyway, I love this. It's awesome. You'll get a discount on one if you pick it up between now and midnight on Friday. So there's that. I'll put them back in my pocket directly so that they can continue to argue. The other thing that many of you asked me about following yesterday's video was this chuck which was lying there hidden in plain sight the whole time. What sort of chuck was it? Is that a Morse taper on the back of it? And all of this kind of thing. So I'd suggest that this is a chuck with an arbor. It's not a Morse taper. It's a parallel type shank arbor. I don't know what it came out of because I just kind of bought it on eBay the other day and I'm going to pull it apart and rebuild it. I did that the other day as well just with this chuck which is exactly the same thing only it was frozen solid so I had to sort of completely disassemble it and just make it live again. And uh, this is the arbor that came out of it. It is the Morse taper arbor. So it's got what they call a Jacobs taper here on this end and you just give this a nudge with a soft-faced hammer and it seats itself down in there fairly well for axial loads for drilling, okay? And the other end of it fits up inside a drill press or into the tail stock of a lathe or into a Morse taper kind of receptacle inside a milling machine. And, uh, you know, if it's the wrong size Morse taper, you can get these adaption-type sleeves. This is... Morse taper 3, this is Morse taper 2, they fit together like that, you know, and then you can get them apart just by nudging them like this a little bit, so it's all quite cleverly worked out. And uh, the really brilliant thing about this, and you would never see a chuck like this on a hand drilling machine, they're a bit heavy duty for that, but the brilliant thing about this is, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six different parts. And the thing that most people don't know is they have to break one part in half to assemble it. So if you really are interested in that, I'll do a video where we pull one apart and rebuild it. And that way, if you ever find yourself the proud owner of a 50-year-old drill press with the chuck that is just frozen solid, you'll know how to get it apart. And they are bulletproof, these things. This is a Jacobs chuck, which is uh, number 34, and it opens to... 
I can't read that from here, 13 or 16 millimetres, something like that. Anyway, big enough for work here in the fat cave and they last forever. And even if they're mistreated and just, you know, abused to buggery, then uh, they still have life left in them. And if <laughs> with the correct therapy and the proper medication, they can uh, learn to walk again. So that's kind of amazing. Now, let's talk about the crazy Swiss, shall we? Because this is a bit of a warning for joints like Australia, at least philosophically, although we would never be in this position. According to the newspaper spiegel.de, Switzerland could be the first country to impose driving bans on EVs in proposed emergency measures aimed at ensuring energy security this winter, which is kind of now, you know, up there. Swiss media are reporting on a draft regulation imposing restrictions and bans on the use of electrical energy. Specifically, the draft says, quote, the private use of electric cars is only permitted for absolutely necessary journeys, for example, professional practice, shopping, visiting the doctor, attending religious events, attending court appointments. A stricter speed limit is also planned for highways. Most of the electricity in Switzerland comes from hydropower. However, the country also imports electricity from Germany and France. If there are bottlenecks there, electricity could also become scarce in Switzerland. Energy security in Europe is considered endangered because of the Russian war of aggression against the Ukraine. Many countries are therefore preparing for an energy emergency. The restrictions on EVs are only intended for level three restrictions, according to the draft regulations. Before that, other austerity measures would take effect in private households. Washing machines, for example, should then only run at a maximum of 40 degrees C. Leaf blowers, patio heaters, seat heaters in chair lifts may not be operated, and videos from streaming services should only be shown in standard definition resolution. So it doesn't sound like it might be the most fun white Christmas ever in Switzerland, does it now? And this is, frankly, what happens. when countries rush headlong into some kind of new technology, for example, electric vehicles, without getting the integration right. Like, if you are gonna rush headlong into the adoption of electric vehicles, it'd be nice if we had a rock solid solution for where that electricity was gonna come from. Kind of important, because once the population gets on board and starts adopting the technology, parking it in their garages, they're likely not to be that receptive to messages that, you know, that fuel that you're expecting to come out of the wall for your shiny new EV, well, got a bit of a problem with that. So in that case, it's energy security. And we don't have that problem here in Australia, do we? We've got endless coal. So hypothetically, we could generate endless electricity for all of the driving that we need to do. But by the same token, you know, the Albanese government, props to them, they're actually passing some legislation and they did just pass the Treasury Laws Amendment Bill, Electric Car Discount Bill 2022, and they're going to backdate it to July. And effectively, that means that if you 
use a novated lease to uh, put the driveway in put the driveway in your car or put your car in the driveway, then if it's an electric car under the luxury car tax threshold, you're going to be able to do that without incurring any fringe benefits tax liability whatsoever. The upshot of which is that if you buy an EV like a Hyundai Kona Electric or a Model 3, it's going to cost you in terms of the impost on your take-home pay roughly the same as a Toyota Corolla with an internal combustion engine costing about half as much. So that's a, a, a fundamental change that makes uh, it much easier to justify the ownership of an EV under a novated lease because it's just so much cheaper now. The problem with this stuff, though, is that there's still not enough chat out here in ambient Australian society about how we're going to upgrade the poles and the wires to make sure that when 50% of the houses in your street are charging up an EV overnight. And let's not forget, that's how we roll, isn't it? You know, you come home from work or you've been out all day, you get your phone, you plug it in, you get your laptop, you plug it in. The devices that warrant recharging typically get plugged in and a car is no different. You come home, you've got, I don't know, 50, 60% battery remaining, you're gonna plug in, okay? And the problem with this, obviously, is that the poles and the wires won't cope. And the even bigger problem is that when half of the cars in your street get electrified and when we have Christmas which is just around the corner and everyone decides to go on some pilgrimage to you know Queensland or down the coast wherever then where are we all going to charge up on holidays because at the moment the logistics of recharging when you are traveling in regional Australia are fucked and not enough chat and not enough regulatory emphasis is put on things of this nature. So these are like failure modes of the widespread adoption of EVs in Australia. There's another one, okay? In California, they did a, an audit recently. California has rushed headlong into the adoption of EVs because they're so friggin' woke, right? Now, I'm all for EVs in big cities because of the improvement in air quality. That's awesome. Pollution kills a lot of people prematurely and we can sideline some of those deaths just by running more EVs in our most populous regions. So, fantastic. California's done that, okay? And then they do an audit of all of the public charges. At any given time, roughly a third of them are down. The, the, the uptime is just not there because they haven't been worked out well enough and that is flat out unacceptable. Here in Australia, one of our most populous regions in Sydney and one of our most affluent regions as well, Mossman, a local government area on the North Shore, has three public charges. And this means that all of these people who own EVs, who haven't got off-street parking, who have to park on the street, they're running extension cords across the footpath and over the fence and through a tree and down into their electric car on the street, which to me is just, that's like, it's a chicken or the egg proposition, I know, but you'd think that a local council in one of the most affluent suburbs would be able to see 
further than its own dick when it comes to putting measures in place to ensure that these suburbs with a high percentage of EVs also have a high percentage of public charging stations, wouldn't you think? Could they not even profiteer off that? Could they not just swipe your credit card, use the app, whatever, and have a scheme where it was an earner for the council? Hashtag FFS. And I'll tell you what else they're not doing here in Australia, and I don't think Chris Bowen or Albo is smart enough to cross this bridge without somebody getting the weapons-grade cattle prod and saying, hey, dickheads, you need to think about this. What they really need to do now as an absolute priority is to think about recycling of the battery. Because if it's profitable to recycle the batteries, then hey, okay, there's a business case for taking the batteries and recycling them and making money out of that. And someone will do that. But what if the goalposts move for some reason, for some economic reason, and all of a sudden, it's no longer profitable to recycle the batteries. Then we've got all of these three, four, five hundred kilo boxes full of properly toxic shit like lithium hexafluorophosphate. That's a bit fucking Erin Brockovich if it gets into the groundwater. And as far as I'm aware, we're not doing anything on the legislative front to invoke a mandate that ensures somebody carries the can to make sure that batteries get disposed of responsibly. Like, there's all of this rhetoric about, you know, dispose of your phone responsibly. Well, the battery in your phone is a freaking bee's dick of lithium ions compared with the battery in an EV. And we really do need to have legislation with teeth about the disposal of that. And all I'm seeing from Switzerland to friggin' Shaya is rhetoric about let's all get ourselves into EVs. And this is one of the problems with what happens when governments fire all of their technical experts and they just have people inside the house with who are just like washed up lawyers and marketers with no technical experience. They don't know what's important. They just think, oh, there's a few votes in EVs and getting them out on the road. So let's do that. So this part of this report, I guess, is a PSA, which kind of says we can learn something from Switzerland. And the something is integration of radically new technology is vitally important. I don't think it'd be much fun in Switzerland not being able to drive anywhere except friggin' church or the doctor. That doesn't sound like much fun to me. And particularly if you just spent the big bucks to embrace the new technology and you saw a door opening on a brighter, cleaner future and now the shutter's just been pulled down on your fingers rather abruptly and rudely. And exactly the same thing is at risk of occurring here if this new Treasury Laws Amendment electric cars discount bill kind of rapidly increases the number of electric vehicles on the road and we don't grow other aspects of the integration in proportion to the adoption of these new vehicles. Over to you in the comments. What do you think of that?
And now this from you, if your name is Dave, and if you commented yesterday on my report where I said that maybe it'd be a really, really good idea for nine out of 10 motoring editorial outlets around the world to actually tell people like you, the audience, that they go on junkets to provide reports on new cars to you. I think that'd be positive because it definitely influences what is said, at least in my estimation. And you deserve to know, because this is the second biggest thing, statistically, that you are likely to buy in your life, right? After you've got a dwelling, you want a car, and that's usually how it rolls for many people on the hierarchy of what is spent. So, Dave said this, I've pasted below some comments I made on the issue of launch perks from a Chasing Cars video. Chasing Cars is an Australian car review website owned by the insurance company Budget Direct. Okay, Ironically, Dave goes on, Chasing Cars is the only Aussie review site that I felt comfortable with, but their response to my suggestion they clearly declare receiving a benefit for launch attendance disturbed me. In particular, the disingenuous response that a plane ticket is nothing like the cash they can spend. So then Dave did paste the alleged response from Chasing Cars, which I have no reason to doubt is genuine. That is, quote, We attended the Grand Cherokee launch and yet we still made this video. Manufacturers invite us to attend launches because they value our audience. They also value having a nice, tame bunch of journalists attend and produce nice, tame stories so that they can get a portfolio of positive things that are said in the press together so the marketing manager and or the PR manager can shove that positive portfolio under the snout of the senior shit kicker in the organisation in Australia and thus show the team what a lovely job they've done. That's another reason to do it. They go on and say, we accept the invitations because the insights available are often exceptionally valuable and sometimes you see cool stuff we couldn't shoot anywhere else. That's true, you do get access, and that's one of the things about journalism, right? If you're a car journalist, you get access to places and people that normal members of the public don't get access to in the automotive domain. If you're an entertainment reporter, you get to interview celebrities. If you're a political reporter, you get to interview the Prime Minister, things like that. The real thing about journalism is it's a de facto access for the ordinary person to people that they could not normally get face-to-face -face with and things that they could not normally get face-to-face -face with. So that's quite true. But a plane ticket isn't anything like cash for advertising. Also true. Plane tickets can't pay the bills. Also true. We can't trade them in for money. Also true. Chasing cars is fully funded by a large insurance company, Budget Direct, and that insulates us from having our profits slashed by angry car makers cutting ad spend if we say something honest and critical. That's also true. Advertising is the mother of bad incentives, and it really does impact major news organisations like uh, Costello's Cockheads and Teenage Rupert Ninja Turtle, right? So that, that same advertising imperative doesn't really kick chasing cars in the slats as hard as it does major news and current affairs operations which have an advertiser-driven business model. So absolutely, I'm like on board with a lot of this stuff. I think this relatively equal power dynamic brings us a degree of respect in the industry. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't mind what Jason Cowes does, actually. I think Tom Baker, he's the driving force there and he's a lawyer-turned-sort-of-amateur presenter and in that context, he doesn't do a bad job. And I know it results in more honest content for our community. I don't know what exactly what they mean there. More honest than other outlets, perhaps, or is it just a greater degree of honest comment for uh, the community? We'll never know. I hope that gives you some insight. Well, I'd suggest that this is in part, very disingenuous, because if you are chasing cars, the reason you exist is to go out and chase cars, like new cars, to review. And that's why you exist, okay? You are a car review website. And therefore, if you suddenly don't get invited to some gig, and all of your competitors do, well, that kind of, uh, it fucks you. So you've got to kind of play the game, do you not? Otherwise, you will not be invited back, and that will be bad, even if there's not an advertiser dimension to what could happen if you said something critical. The, see, when you say something critical to a car company, here's what happens, right? The first thing they do is they ring up and they complain to you. They say, oh, like this, and you go, well, you know, and... Then, if they're still not happy with your response or you say something critical again, they say, we're not inviting you to our launches. Okay. And they say, and we're not giving you access to our cars. Generally, with a big organisation, what they do is they send the invitation to the organisation, like to Wheels magazine or to Chasing Cars or to Cars Guide or something, and then the publication elects which journalist they're going to send. And then if it's the wrong journalist who's been critical in the past, there'll be a dialogue between the PR in the car company and whoever the shot caller is editorially at the uh, at the publication. And they'll say, oh, we, really, we, we really don't want you to send him. Can't you just send someone nice, <laughs> right? That's what happens. And then if this sort of thing continues, there's an escalation of things that get cut off, such as your balls, ultimately, right? So I have been on the receiving end of a couple of those balls cut off conversations. It's not very much fun. It really isn't. Anyway, I've insulated myself from that now, and it's oddly liberating being able to say whatever the fuck you want. So here's the difference, right? If you say to the audience that journalist X travelled to Y as a guest of car company Z, then everyone is on the same page. Like, you don't have to... It, it doesn't have to be, well, we got down on our knees and fluffed like champions, right? It just has to say that we were guests of car company. That's how we got there. That's how this report happened. Because that's important for you to know. If you've got the big bucks on the line, you can say, well, it might there might be 25% too much positivity there as a result of self-censorship by the journalist who really does want to keep himself sweet with his boss by keeping himself sweet with the car company. Because if he does not do that, the car company will go 100% ex-wife on him and complain to the boss. The boss will make his job untenable or unpleasant, depending on the severity of the alleged offence, and that's really bad. Okay, so the first thing that happens is journalists write reviews they should be thinking about you. They should be thinking about how can I add value 
to this poor bastard who's trying to decide whether to buy the D-Max or the Hilux or a Triton or a Ranger, okay? Like, the first thing that journalist will do is say, what's car company X going to think if I say blah? Which is what I really think, but if I say that, what are they going to think and then what could happen and will they complain to the boss and will I have the, you know, will, will I have to dodge the snip? That would be bad. Now, I just want to tell you what happens in other domains, all right? I used to be a host on Radio 2UE in Sydney, which is kind of the oldest talkback radio station in the country, I think. John Laws used to be uh, a wheel there, the golden microphone and the golden tonsils and all of that stuff, right? And I used to do this uh, weekend afternoons program on Saturday and Sunday, and right at the end of one of those days, Sunday, I think, we had the political editor for the network come on and do a segment about what to expect in federal politics for the week ahead. His name was Michael Packey, and we were never mates, but he's a respected political journalist, and he knew and knows a lot about what goes on in Canberra, and he gets that kind of access that I talked about earlier. And, you know, you spend some time in the office and you talk to these people and you figure out how shit works. If you're a journalist in that political domain and there's an election campaign, then you do fly around with the Prime Minister while he is campaigning and another member of the team flies around with a leader of the opposition who is also campaigning. And the thing that happens there is that the Prime Minister's department sends the organisation a bill for the seat on the plane so that it can't look like a conflict of interest, like, well, we gave you this access and we gave you this seat and we accommodated you here. It's not like a junket on the car launch at all because all of this stuff in the car launch domain, that happens in secret because it's not disclosed. They'll say, well, we're here in South Africa, but they won't say what got them there, how they got there, you know? And that's absolutely a conflict of interest between trying to keep the car maker happy so that you can come back and remain sweet with them and your boss. And the conflict is between all of that and you, who deserve someone to say in the most unbiased way, what they really think. And then you can assess that for yourself. And the fact that there is no disclosure, almost without exception, across the board, with not just in Australia, but across the board, it's just kind of sweet to get on the plane and have that first glass of Verve Clicquot. And after that, dude, it can all be a blur. And the only problem with that is if you give a shit about the audience and what they really deserve.